kids, I wanted to ask you this morning if you have a favorite word. Um, anybody want to share a favorite word that you might have? Yes, sir. Is that awesome? That's a good favorite word. Anybody else have a favorite word? Want to throw one out? Fun. That's a good word. We had a parent in the first service that said their kid's favorite word is like. Like, you know, like that kind of like. Yes, ma'am. Do you have a favorite word? Is that veil back there? You can tell your dad, he can tell me. It is. Loving. Loving. That's a good word. That's right. Well, how many of you have seen Mary Poppins? Anybody seen Mary Poppins? See, it's so great that the kids still watch Mary Poppins. You should watch Mary Poppins. Um, you remember a word, a real fun word that was in that, in that movie? Anybody know it? Yeah, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. One of my favorite words when I was a kid was my dad's own version of that. He made up lots of funny and silly words. His word that sounds like that was hyperbolicelibistic sesquidelamistic. And that was my favorite word for a long time when I was a kid, uh, along with all the other favorite words that he came up with. But do you know what God's favorite word is? What do you think God's favorite word is? The thing he likes to say the most. JC? Or who's that up there? Elijah, yeah. What is it? Love? What does he like to say? Yeah, he likes to, like, I'm sure he would like to say and says, I love you. But here's what I think God's favorite word is. Yes. I think God's favorite word is yes. Let me read you something that, that Paul, uh, one of uh, the, the, the apostles wrote. He said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our yes to God for our glory, or our amen. Amen means yes, so be it, to God for his glory. And so we have in our reading today, we have James, and you guys have just James 7 in your little um, order of service today about submitting ourselves to God. But um, James has lots of things that he's instructing them to do and telling them to do. Some, there's some yeses and there are some noes and stuff in there. But even with all the rules, I would say, even your parents probably have lots of rules. All the things that our parents and that even God calls us to do, tells us to do, there is such a yes in those. Even when our parents say no, when God says no, do you know that there's a, when he says no to one thing, he's saying yes to something better. Yes to something better. When you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The whole world was a yes, and there was just one no. But even that no meant, if they would obey, that no meant something better, that they would continue in fellowship with God. Even in God's no's, there's ultimately a yes for us. God's favorite thing to say is yes to us. So when we, even parents, as we think about what uh, the some of the, the very difficult, the, the high moral standard that we have been called to, just know that what God is saying to us is yes. Yes, he's saying yes to creation. He's saying yes to us and to redemption. He's saying yes to the world that he loves. Yes to the world that he wants and he promises that he is going to bring. So what's God's favorite word, kids? Yes. Yes, it is. Lord, thank you for our children. I pray you bless them. 
Help them to constantly hear you saying yes to them. And even when you say no, even when you lead them in a direction they may not want to go, even when they say no to you, I pray that they would know that you are for them and that you've proven that in your son Jesus, who is always and forever yes. Lord, lead our hearts today as adults. The word of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So it's worth saying uh, that Christianity is not a high moral standard, but it does have one. That might seem subtle, but it's very, very important. Another way to say that is Christians aren't focused on our morals. We're focused on our Christ. When we confuse the Christian faith with its morals, which are high, that's when we struggle to separate it from just politics or when we struggle to separate it from a social agenda. That's when we can treat the ethics of Christianity like a buffet line from which we kind of choose our preferred standards and norms, and there are many of them in Christianity. And we typically choose the ones by which we believe others should live by, and maybe that we feel we're pretty good at living by. But Christianity is about what we believe first and foremost, which certainly shapes how we act. When I say it's about what we believe, it's that we believe that the Son of God lived and died to reconcile unholy people to a holy God who loves us in spite of our moral performance. Christianity is about forgiveness from a holy God that heals us, but also love that helps us. Jesus died for your absolute best performance because it wasn't enough. He died for it. And it's still not enough. But Jesus is still enough. And he always will be. And John the Baptist captured this point pretty clearly, I think, pretty succinctly, when he saw Jesus on the opposite bank of the Jordan River, and he told his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, behold the perfect one. Jesus is perfect, and he's here to help us. In his own ministry, John called people to repentance. He called them into the waters of baptism to change their ways, to repent. He was calling people to a standard. But we need help. And John knew this. All of us need help. And by design, friends, we need each other in our need of help, in our need of Jesus. According to James, in our epistle reading today, what we don't need from each other is judgment. We don't need judgment. James warns that those who seem most concerned about sin and its effects, and rightly so, we should be concerned, those can go so far as to slide themselves right into God's judgment seat, acting as though they are doing the Lord a favor, as though maybe God is falling down on his job and he just needs us to step in for a little bit. James describes this as judging the law itself. The self-appointed judge is doing what? Is, is judging someone for breaking the law while simultaneously, pridefully breaking the law by judging them. It's in some sense nullifying the strength of the law by misusing it through hypocrisy. For James, this self-exaltation throws shade on the moral vision of the gospel itself. In other words, if anyone imagines herself or himself capable of being the judge, then he or she has inherently reduced the law by which she's judging. And I think it's good for us every once in a while to ask the question, 
Why are we so judgy? Why are we so judgy? And now some of you might be thinking, I'm not judgy, but they are. Funny, right? Ironic. The first reason that we're so judgy makes a lot of sense, really, and it's probably the most common. People, as a rule, do bad things or dumb things or strange things, and one or two things happen. They make no sense to us, and they affect us, right? Every day, for example, I drive a quarter mile, a very short stretch of Cedar Lane Road, right down here, take a right, right there in front of the, um, the Swamp Rabbit Cafe. I only drive like a mile and a half to work. And every day, all the drivers stack up in the left lane, despite the fact that there are a total of three lanes, but they're all in the left one. They're, they are just there like they're a, there's a tractor beam that has pulled them into the left lane. And they create a wall of left laners, making it nearly impossible for me to quickly jump on there and then make my left to turn. It's like I'm playing Frogger every time I'm coming, but they're all in the left lane, and it is inexplicable. I don't understand. And every day I am judging them. Sometimes pretty much every day, twice a day, because they do the exact same thing when I go back to my house and have to make a left to go back that way. They're in the left lane. That's a facetious example, but I think it works. Other people don't make sense to us, but they affect us. And the truth is, we are other people to other people. So, that's the first reason that we're judging. We share it. The second reason we judge makes less sense, I think, but it's still true. We're insecure, and we like not being the one doing the bad or the dumb or the strange things this time. Somebody else is doing it. It's not me. It's them. It's not us. We like being on the apparent better end of a comparison or a contrast. That's kind of a relief, right? Especially, you know, it's not me. Especially, like, if it's a moral thing. We're glad to be the one perceived as right. And we can end up triangulating and talking about our brothers or sisters, as James says, or James warns, and we're not the subject of that conversation. But, again, we like to not be the one doing it at any given time. The third reason we judge makes even less sense, I think, but it's still very, very real. We actually believe we're superior. We actually believe it. And thereby we sense an inherent right to criticize or to expose or to look down on someone else. Morally, but also in other areas, maybe all the areas. Even if we'd never consciously admit it, we can still functionally believe it and live like it. It's subtle because we're just better. We're just smarter. We're just cooler. We're definitely just nicer. We're more responsible and we're better drivers. But the gospel says what? It says we're all sinners. That's really where we're supposed to start. That's where James is dramatically calling us in submitting ourselves to the Lord to resist our common enemy, common enemy, Satan, to draw near to our common helper, our Lord, who will draw near to us. James calls us to seriously mourn our sin and its effects, at least for a time, to take them very, very seriously to humble ourselves before the Lord who by His very compassionate and His very self-giving nature will lift us back up. He will forgive us every time. So it's a good idea to occasionally remind ourselves what the definition of sin is. What is He forgiving us for? 
What's the concept, the biblical concept of sin? And you may know this, but again, it's good to, to bear in mind what we're talking about here. It means falling short of the good that's required or going beyond the good that is allowed. Conceptually speaking, think of that as a gap. We shorted it or we went too far. The margin exposing too little or too much as we pray what's done and what's left undone. The gap for which someone is responsible and for which they are to be held accountable. I'll give you another somewhat facetious example, but last year we built a garage. And the initial framing crew, uh, which is generous to call them that, assembled the roof on our, that sounded judgy, didn't it? <laughs> assembled the roof on our garage without an overhang on the back. In other words, the gable of the roof, you know what a gable is, it does this, and it's supposed to hang out a little bit so that water doesn't just run right down the back of it. Well, they forgot to do the overhang. And I'm not a framer. I'm, not, I'm an amateur carpenter at best. I'm just a caveman, right? But when I looked at it, I said, nope, that's not right. And I thought it was just a large but honest mistake because they'd already tied in the roof, you know, the trusses. But the foreman of the crew actually tried to convince me that it was right while one of his guys was standing behind him slowly and remorsefully shaking his head. No, no, man, we missed it. The general contractor did fire them. He did fix it. But metaphorically speaking, that missing overhang was a sin, metaphorically. It wasn't a sin because I didn't like not having an overhang on the back. It wasn't a sin because the general contractor said it was wrong. It wasn't even a sin against the blueprints. You might say it was a sin against physics, inviting real problems when rain comes. A sin against the design, the way things work. Apparently, my garage was the first structure that this framing crew had attempted to build on their own. Um, it's hard out there. People are looking for people that can do stuff or people that can't do stuff. They'd apprenticed, but not very well. Um, and I heard the journalist David Brooks recently say, humans are pretty good at learning, but they are fantastic at imitating. But their attempt at my garage seemed to be a failure on both accounts. So it affected me. It was a thing. There was a gap. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture to think about. That there it was something left undone that should have followed a particular standard. And here's the thing too, Christians aren't the only people who care about sin. Some people would like to maybe suggest that, but generally we're the only ones who call it sin, but secular society is clearly committed to pointing out transgressions, to holding people accountable, to regularly arbitrating and denying the possibility of forgiveness or even reform, rehabilitation. Something you did 20 years ago, you could, you could still be that right? Now, positively, we develop policies and we reform systems, we deter corruption, we confront wrongdoing, but exposure and judgment and condemnation and even self-righteousness are the order of the day. Not just this day, they always have been. It's in us to be judgy. Point is, we all believe in sin. We, we, we just don't all believe the same things about sin, what makes it sin, who ultimately gets to decide it's sin or that it should even be called sin but we're happy to be concerned with other people's sins, whatever we might call them. For our part, though, Christians let God decide 
what sin is. This is important. Jesus said, I do and say what my Father is doing and saying. And Jesus told his disciples to do the same for him, to obey and to teach others to obey everything I have commanded you. So we do our best to understand all of those things, why certain things are sin in God's eyes, even when the reasons or the consequences aren't really obvious to us. Some things do make perfect sense, like stealing or murder or bigotry. Other things not as much, like seemingly harmless doses of lust or greed, so-called victimless sins, things we might could justify. But even if we don't fully understand, as Christians, we have historically agreed to defer to the one we say we believe is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. So this is why James checks his readers when they decide they are going to be the judges. We don't make the standard and we also don't enforce it ultimately. And so James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, we're not very good law keepers, certainly not very good law makers. So why on earth would we be good judges? All this really is, friends, is an acknowledgement of, and it's an exercise in reality. The way we all are, the way God is, what that difference between us and Him means, and what's really wrong with the world. You're wrong with the world, and so am I. So if we take this seriously, it means we not only stop judging, but we stop judging because we realize we don't have to. There is a God who does and who will and will do it faithfully. Because He is just. God has judged. And God will judge every last one of us for every last thing. But because He is always good and always loving, His judgment will be right. Every time. It will be perfect. It will be trustworthy. And if we will leave to Him what belongs to Him, we will ultimately marvel at the world He remakes in His judgment just as we already marvel at the undeserved forgiveness that we've been given. Because as God judges, He forgives. He's gracious and merciful for a thousand generations. James may not unpack it this way, but the extension is obvious. If we believe God can and will judge people justly, then we're free from doing His job. Imagine a world, imagine your world when you take Him up on that. Imagine the freedom of not experiencing morality as a weapon used against you or a weapon you feel inclined to use. Now, here's a caveat, right? This doesn't mean people aren't empirically wrong or that if we've been hurt, we shouldn't make it known. It doesn't mean we ignore the sinful cycles uh, and systems that continue to, uh, as Cornelius Plantinga said, vandalize shalom. In other words, to vandalize the peace and wholeness of the world God created and is redeeming. Confronting those things is biblical, and it's even loving to say no to those things. But it does mean we're called to see ourselves and others as more than these isolated dots of imperfection and failure, stuck there to be judged, more than people to be judged and sorted. We see life not as a dot, conceptually speaking, but as a line moving in a better direction hopefully toward Christ and the righteousness that He has shared with us. Not our own, but His own. 
We see people to be loved, not to be judged. As hard as that might be for us. And I'm not going to lie to you, and it's probably already obvious to you that I can be really judgmental at times. Some of that is because I have many opinions, and most of them are strong. But the benefit of having many opinions is the increased opportunity to realize that all of all these opinions that I have, there are going to be many that are wrong at any given time. It's a numbers game, really. The more opinions you have, the better, better chance you have of being wrong, right? By the grace of God, I've gotten better at seeing this. But when that's not working, I've been married for 21 years, and that is a surefire way to discover your imperfection, where you're wrong, and how you're affecting others. I'm also probably more concerned with understanding why people do things, even why I do things. I read recently that many psychologists and counselors believe this is the wrong question anyway, at least initially. Why did you do that? And it's not because why as a question isn't valid, but because it's so complex. Do you know why you do everything you do? Can you really unpack that? The Apostle Paul was like, I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do. We don't know. Many people don't know why they drive in the left lane. There are so many factors that determine why we do what we do. It's not deterministic, but often it's so difficult to even understand ourselves and the confluence of nature and nurture and choice of pressures and hopes and perceptions that could be either true or false. And they animate us. What we do know is that we are under the sway of forces, good and evil, of the world, the flesh, and the devil in our ancient parlance, right? These forces, both good and bad, they take on a whole range of intensity and a whole myriad of forms. There are all sorts of winds blowing us around, and often we don't know which way the wind is moving until we, you know, hoist our, our sails up there, until we find, uh, you know, we act upon it and we find ourselves moving in a direction and maybe not actually the direction we want to be going or would have chosen to be going. And we ask ourselves why. And I think we're all like this. With that in mind, let's just ask for a minute how we might see people differently. This is important right here. Is our response to someone's sin touched with grief or just disgust and annoyance? When tempted to judge, do we see them as our brothers and sisters? Do we see ourselves? And if there's no grief and even no sadness that they are missing the mark and no empathy, we're judging. If when we see someone falling short, we don't also see the larger problem of sin, again, see ourselves, and we don't feel inclined to help, we're judging. If from the jump what we want is actually that person's exposure or shame or suffering and not their repentance and their restoration, we're clearly just sliding into God's seat. We're playing God and James should be ringing in our ears. And let me say this as I wrap this up. There, there are times when judgment is necessary in the church. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 5. Times when we recognize the stakes are high. And in Mark 9, we actually get a picture here. Uh, you know, it's our gospel today. Jesus reserves what are arguably the harshest words for times like these. Times when it would be better for people to suffer an awful fate like forceful drowning or incineration on a burning trash heap in Gehenna. 
in this life than to have to give account before God, not merely for vandalizing shalom, but for encouraging others to do it, teaching others to do so. And in his words, in his teaching, Jesus draws a line when one's relationship to the standard, falling short of it, attempts to replace the standard itself. Or when one's relationship to the boundary, going beyond it, tries to push the boundary out and encourages others to embrace it and transgress it. In its context here, and particularly in its parallel, Matthew 18, you know, Mark 9, there's a concern for the vulnerable at this point, concern for children or these little ones and their faith. And Jesus' vivid imagery even of cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye isn't about an individual undergoing drastic something drastic to themselves to avoid their own sin, though the principle still holds. It's particularly about recognize the influ- recognizing influence, the influence of one's, uh, one part of the body, so to speak, on the other parts, the powerful, deleterious effect of one erring limb and what it can have on the whole. This is something the disciples took very seriously, even to the point of Paul confronting Peter for slipping into moralism and influencing the Gentiles to be circumcised. It can happen. We've got to be careful. Even still, though, as we weigh and try to discern and try to know when to, to confront the realities that are in front of us and how to approach those who we see in an obvious sin. We are called to do this in love, always in the hope of repentance and restoration for all, always in, 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 uh, in humility, submitting to God, not as judges but as lovers of shalom and the goodness that that means for everyone. Let me just share a, a quote. I actually have this as a reminder. It hangs in my office from Reinhold Niebuhr. It says, but at its best, the sense of Christian humility does not destroy moral ardor. It merely destroys moral arrogance and prevents righteousness from degenerating into self-righteousness. We are serious about the moral standard that God has given us. But we are not the judges. We are those relying on the forgiveness and the help of our Savior to be not a dot stuck in the middle of our own failure, but a line moving together in the righteousness of Christ Himself. Neither the heights of our moral competence or the depths of our remorse actually reach the necessary level of deserving the Lord's forgiveness or help. Do you know that? It's not enough, but in Christ, God has forgiven you and me and taken upon Himself the burden for sin, the responsibility, the judgment for things that matter, things that hurt others, the gap, things that vandalize shalom. Every last one of us frustrates, resists, or even attacks the wholeness and peace for which the world and the human community were made. But in Jesus, we not only have an example to follow, we have help. You do not want Jesus as just a moral standard. You want His help. And you have it. What is the best help that Jesus can give us and does give us? That's what the gospel says, is that our failure is not final. That our labor is not in vain and that our difference from God, profound as it is, is not ultimately distance from God. 
He is the God who draws near to us, as James said, who came to us in His Son and comes to us by His Spirit, sinners though we are, to remind us of this, to remind us by His own unfailing love and His grace that we are His daughters and His sons. We look to Him, our common Abba Father, and look around. These are your brothers and sisters. Whatever the world might say, whatever temptation we might feel to be elevated above one another, remember that God is the judge, and He is just, and He is good at His job. Do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it and teach us to love one another. We are all failing to live up to what we know is good and beautiful and true, but you never fail. And we can throw ourselves into your arms again together today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.